Man, is that over-enthusiastic? I'd hate to hear under-enthusiastic. Man, oh man. No, I'm teasing. That's all right. That's all right. I don't need my ego stroked any more than it is, so my wife takes care of that. Uh, Let me just, uh, while they're passing stuff, I'll give you a little update on what we've been doing. Uh, We, uh, since 2013, uh, February, we have been spending about six months a year in China. Um, We're working with the underground church, training the leaders. The, The church in China has as its mission to uh, reach the nations of the world that exist between China and Israel. And the name of their uh, ministry is called Back to Jerusalem. Their goal is to train in the next 10 years 100,000 missionaries to go out to nations. They're getting ready to send a team to Iran. They've sent teams to Syria, to the Sudan. In other words, all of the most dangerous spots in the world... They're sending teams out, and what their mission is, is they start a business. So it might be an organic vegetable garden where they raise vegetables to sell to restaurants, or it might be a restaurant itself, or they're in North Korea, and they're goat herding. And what, what's happening is there's an American who brings um, frozen goat embryos to China, And then the Chinese take them into North Korea and artificially implant. I don't know what you call that stuff. But uh, they stick the embryo in the mother goat. And then the North Korean scrawny goat gives birth to this American goat that's hardier, gives more cheese and milk and all of this. And so the North Koreans are ecstatic with what's going on because it's increasing the food production uh, for the country. But what they don't know is underneath the radar, these Chinese Christians are, are spreading the gospel, planting churches, and they're doing it fearlessly. And to get, oh, absolutely. To give you an idea, there, there's one elderly woman, she's in her late 70s, and she would cross over the border between China and North Korea every day with a big trunk full of Bibles. And the way she could do that, she knew the guard. He was also a Christian, so he was sort of looking the other way, letting her through. Well, one day she comes to the border. A different guard is there, sees the Bible. She gets arrested. So she's, I don't know if you've heard the stories of these North Korean prisons, but she's in one of these North Korean prisons. And she stands out in the yard and she starts preaching the gospel. And she's immediately surrounded by rifles. And they say, if you don't shut up, we're going to shoot you right now. And she says, shoot away because I'm not going to stop. And they backed down. And within a week, they got so sick of her, they released her. (laughs) The next day, she's at the border with more Bibles. All right. So this this is the kind of people. I have to tell you guys, I am so humbled working with these Chinese Christians. Their faith overflows. Their belief in the power of the Holy Spirit overflows. Their commitment to prayer overflows. And and they actually look to us as teachers. And I'm kind of going, what are you? (laughs) Uh, I I think we should maybe reverse the roles, but in reality we have. Connie and I have learned that, by the way, this is my wife, Connie. 
And she should actually stand up. Now, here you can give an over-enthusiastic welcome. All right. She is, uh, it, it'll be in August, our 40th anniversary. So she actually deserves a crown in heaven just for that. So that, but um, you shouldn't say yeah so enthusiastically, all right? But um, just a, a couple of things. Number one, Calvary Chapel Godspeak has made our ministry possible. You guys, the day Rob heard that I was transitioning out of the bridge, uh, after 33 years of pastoring there and moving in a new direction, he just comes and says, we're going to stand behind you. We're going to support you. And so from day one, Calvary Chapel Godspeak has been supporting us and enabling us to continue our work so that we're like, for example, we just got back from Alabama. We did a, we did a uh, marriage retreat down there helping couples who are struggling with their marriages. Uh, we encouraged the church that was struggling down there. And we're able to do that without charging anything because of people like you who are supporting us. So tomorrow we're getting on a train for uh, train, uh, a plane for Bogota, Colombia. And so we're going down there and we're going to be meeting with uh, Christians down there, helping them to get excited about what God has called them to do down there. And so we're just we're we're having more fun than anybody ought to have have a right to expect to have. I mean, we're just enjoying our life. And then March 1. Uh, we head back to China, and again, please pray for that situation, because what's going on, um, I, I think what happened, uh, it's funny, the official Chinese count is 85 million Christians, and you, that sounds like a lot, but you say, boy, it's been there for a while, and the reason the official Chinese count stays there is there, are, there happen to be 85 million communists in China. And so they don't want there to be more Christians than communists in China. Well, last year, a report came out from Great Britain that the gospel is exploding so quickly in China that in about 10 years, China is going to be the largest Christian nation in the world, by far exceeding the U.S. And, and the Chinese government was embarrassed and angered by this report. So since that time they've been turning up the heat against Christians. And so we've had to, our last time, the first few weeks we were there was a little discouraging. We, we had to be even more careful about not putting our Chinese brothers and sisters in Christ in jeopardy. So we had to, we had to really kind of take a lower profile. And then as we got to the end, we, some opportunities opened up again, and we were able to uh, get a little more aggressive with what we're doing. But... Uh, Right now, I think I shared this with you last time, you guys, 20,000 Chinese people a day are coming to faith in Christ. And it's all one person sharing with another person the gospel of Jesus. That's what's happening. And so our ministry, the, two, the, the couple of things that have really jumped out for us, number one is, is helping them learn how to multiply leadership so that so that a pastor doesn't just retain control, he multiplies himself in the lives of other people so that they can multiply themselves in the lives of other people. That whole Second Timothy 2, 2 concept. And the second thing that God has really been giving us is a message to the Chinese, both Christians and non-Christians, about marriage. Because the whole institution of marriage in China is undergoing tremendous pressure. And all of the old ways are sort of disintegrating, but there's nothing new to replace them. And so 
again, I think I shared this with you last time. We got to do this again, and it's so fun. We're going to a public library, a government library, and teaching what the Bible teaches about marriage. Not even hiding it. Hey, this scripture says this, and this is how you should do this. And, and, it's, and so the librarian, who is a government official, not a Christian, he, he has said, we need you to come here at least once a month uh, to teach. And all of the people who are coming is, are young Chinese in their 20s. Uh, most of them are single at this time, but they don't know anything about marriage. And they're saying, teach us what the Bible says about marriage. So I think I'm doing things in China that I couldn't do in, in America. Isn't that crazy? And, you know, uh, if you ever needed a reason to be involved in the electoral process in America, look at China. Because they don't have that opportunity. Uh, even in Hong Kong, I don't know if you've heard, but China has gone back on their word. Uh, they were going to be able to have free elections. Now, China has said to Hong Kong, we have to approve any leaders that you vote for. So you can vote, but you can only vote for the people we say you can vote for. And so I don't know if you've heard of this Occupy Hong Kong that was going on. Just hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating, well, that's what that was about, is people upset that, that China was going back on its word. But in China, when the government says we're going to do this, they don't have that right to, to protest. They don't have that right to let their voice be heard. They don't have the right to vote. So I just want to encourage you guys that what you're doing here is a wonderful thing and it's a courageous thing. So keep up the good work. All right. I want to jump into God's word. And what I want to share with you has, is going to kind of grow out of kind of some heartbreak that I've been experiencing watching other Christians. And since coming back, I've seen something that has burdened my heart, and it, it's that a lot of Christians are stuck. Do you know what I mean by stuck? You know, you, you grow, you, you accept Christ, you're growing, joy is coming, the Holy Spirit is coming, and you hit something, and you're stuck. And I want to talk about this tonight, and I want to use kind of the terminology or the metaphor of cancer of the soul. You know how, I, I don't know if you've ever had cancer, but I, I just, I had a dear friend. In fact, I think a lot of you know John Anderson just found out last week he's got cancer. Um, and I think he's coming Sunday night to be prayed for. And, and on Wednesday, he's going in for some really serious surgery. But I think cancer, more than any other word, when, when, you, when you hear the doctor say, it's just like, wham! Every, there, your whole life sort of comes to a stop. You know how that happens? And, and when you hear cancer, it's almost like you don't hear anything else the doctor says. Cancer! And, and depending on what's going on, I mean, things have changed a little bit, but, but for many people, the cancer becomes the definition of their lives. And I think the same thing happens spiritually. And so I want to talk about some specific things that are out there 
especially in America, that are cancers, that are getting us stuck, and it's destroying marriage relationships, it's destroying our joy, it's destroying our ability to have the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's destroying our witness. And Satan is just sitting back cracking up at all of this. He's loving it. So before we jump into this, I want to give you three scriptures. First, I want you to look up Jeremiah 17, 9. There, there are three things I need to say before we jump into this. And these are sort of important foundational things. And please, maybe you don't normally take notes, but would you write these scriptures down? Because I think the power of this could be when you're alone as you reflect on these scriptures. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Jeremiah writes, and by the way, this is God speaking. He says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then verse 10 gives the answer to that question. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give each man according to his way. So God asks the question, who can understand the human heart? And he answers it by saying, only I can. Now here's principle number one. And please, you may be upset, but I'm not saying you, I'm saying we all do this. We lie to ourselves, we lie to God, and we lie to each other. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? Okay? We, we lie to ourselves. We lie to each other. We lie to God. How, how do we lie to ourselves? Well, somebody says, I don't have a problem. I don't have an anger problem. It's, it's my wife. If she, would just, if she would just quit pushing my buttons, I, I wouldn't get angry. See, you're lying to yourself. In my view, the number one problem in marriages is self-deception. We lack the courage to be honest with ourselves. And honestly, I want to take it a step further. I think we even lack the ability to be honest with ourselves. That's what Jeremiah 17.10 is saying. You know, hey, I, the Lord, can understand. I don't think you can understand your own heart. Now let me take you to the Psalms. You know this passage, Psalm 139. So turn over to Psalm 139, and we're going to look at verses 23 and 24. And this really answers the question, what should I do in light of the fact that I can't understand myself? So David gives this prayer. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. You guys, I think this is one of the most important prayers that we can pray to God. Not once. Not a little quickie prayer. Oh, search me, oh God, into my heart. You know, blah, blah, blah. The amen and go on with my life. But I mean to slow down and quiet ourselves before God and say, God, I need you to help me understand my heart. Okay? Principle number one, 
is that we lie to ourselves, we lie to God, and we lie to each other. Principle number two, we desperately need the Spirit of God to search our hearts and to reveal our hearts to us. You with me so far? This is making sense? All right, I don't want to move on if you're not with me. So, all right, the third one, Galatians chapter 6. That's New Testament. We should hear a lot of pages shuffling here. Galatians chapter 6. And in Galatians 6, Paul writes this, verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any sin, any trespass, you who are spiritual, in other words, you who are walking by the Spirit, you who are filled with the Spirit, restore such a one. And if you guys have hung around churches for a while, you know that word for restore is the word for mending nets. Okay? In other words, it's like a net that's broken. So it can't catch fish anymore. The fish can just swim out where the holes are. And Paul is saying, you who are spiritual need to come alongside and help to mend those tears in the nets. First principle, we lie to ourselves, we lie to God, we lie to each other. Second principle, we need God to reveal our hearts. And the third principle is we cannot fix ourselves apart from the ministry of the body of Christ. What if the most brilliant surgeon in the world had cancer? And he says, well, I need the best surgeon in the world operating on me, so I'll operate on myself. Have you heard the old expression that an attorney who represents himself has a fool for a client? We may be a good attorney, we may be a good doctor, we may be a good Christian, but when it comes to self-examination and helping, figuring out what my next steps are, we need each other. And I would suggest that that needing each other goes way beyond the marriage relationship. It's not that, oh, husbands, you need your wife, and wives, you need your husbands. In fact, often I've found that wives trying to fix their husbands, I don't know, it doesn't work too well. Have you had that same experience? And husbands trying to fix their wives doesn't work too well. I, I, I discovered last year that I tended to give my wife a lot of suggestions. And much to my surprise, she didn't like it. And I thought they were really good suggestions, but it didn't work. And you see, I think, I think wives and women, you need women friends who can come alongside you. And guys, you need male friends who can come alongside you and help you to grow. So uh, these are the three principles. So let me now talk about and I'm just going to do a couple of these because there, there are actually five that I've seen, but I don't think we're going to have time to go into all of them tonight. But let me start with two cancers of the soul and see if we can get through those. And then if we can get through a third one, we'll do a third one. But the first cancer of the soul, and by the way, my definition of a cancer of the soul is a sin that if you don't deal radically and harshly with it, it will continue to grow and begin to dominate your life. And it becomes what we call a life-dominating 
sin. Where your whole life is defined by this. The first one I want to talk about is anger and bitterness. You guys, this is deadly. And I want to talk about, uh, first we'll take anger and then we'll take bitterness. But anger is a corrosive emotion. Do you know what I mean by the word corrosive? I mean, it, acid is corrosive and it, it eats away at things. And, and if you allow acid to stay on something, it'll weaken the structure of something to where the structure will actually fail. And anger can destroy a marriage. Anger can destroy a friendship. If you're a parent, anger can destroy a child. If you're a child who has anger issues, it can destroy your relationship with your parent. I mean, it, it, it just it corrodes everything around you. I want to read, uh, and again, just write down Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Paul writing to the Ephesians says, Be angry, and yet do not sin. I kind of like what Paul is saying here. He, if, if he had said, don't be angry, in a sense, that would be like saying, don't be human, right? Because we things happen and we get angry. That response is not in and of itself sinful. So if Connie wounds me and I'm angry, I have not sinned because I am feeling anger. But if I allow my anger to result in sinful words or actions, then I've sinned. For example, if, I, if, I, if Brett did something and really hurt me, and I, I said, Brett, I want you to know you really hurt me and I'm angry with you. Have I sinned? No. In fact, I've done the godliest thing I could possibly do. I've taken the first step towards reconciliation. And by the way, that's part of lying to each other. Brett comes up to me and says, oh, Steve, did I, did I hurt you? That? Oh, no, no, I'm fine. Liar! Do you see how often we lie? It's, it's built into the social fabric of American lies, of American relationships. Sociologists did a study and said the average American tells 200 lies a day. How are you doing? That's a lie because I don't really care. I'm doing fine. That's a lie. I'm doing horrible. We, we just, we do this all the time. But we also lie because when our pride is wounded, we don't want to let the other person know they got to us, right? See, we don't want to give them any leverage against us, so, oh, oh no, I'm fine. Steve, what's wrong? Nothing. Are you angry? No, I'm not mad. So be angry and do not sin. And so let me just translate for you. What Paul is saying is be angry, but do not let your anger result 
in sinful words and actions. Now, in order to understand how that works, it's, it's helpful to know the Greek language because there are actually uh, two words for anger. In fact, they're right in this verse. There's anger and there's wrath. Anger is that explosive, volcanic anger. Have you ever been around somebody like that? You know, something ticks them off, Mount Vesuvius goes off. You, and, and the tragedy about that kind of person, after they've done that, they feel fine, and everybody else is scraping the lava off them, you know. Who <laughs> I'm glad I got that out of my system. Oh, thank you, you know. And, and the problem, and that's anger. Anger is explosive anger. So, and I, I don't know if you've, if you've ever been around, I, there's a simple illustration for how devastating this is. Uh, let's say Connie and I get in an argument, and I really get mad at her, and I pull out a gun and I shoot her in the shoulder. 45 automatic. Big old slug right through her shoulder. And the minute I do that, I say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Will you forgive me? Yes. You know, and, and she may even sincerely be willing to forgive me. But after I've asked forgiveness and she's forgiven me, what's the state of her shoulder? She's still wounded. Now, and, and if you are this kind of person, if you're a Mount Vesuvius kind of person, you need to understand that emotional wounds take as long as, if not longer, than physical wounds to heal. And so, guys, you may have said, hey, honey, uh, will you forgive me? Uh, yeah, honey, but it hurts. Well, get over it. Come on, you know, let's get back together. Let's love and kiss and be, be nice with each other. And then he gets angry again at her because she's not willing to respond to him. Because she's still wounded. And I've seen relationships literally come apart at the seams simply because of this pattern. So the first kind of anger is what, what we use the word anger for is this explosive kind of boom kind of anger. Now, some of you don't have that. You're feeling very smug and proud, but you've got the other kind of anger, which I call crockpot anger. Blub, 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 you know. <laughs> no explosion, but underneath there's this bubbling resentment. And have you ever heard the psychologist call this kind of stuff, passive-aggressive behavior. Have you heard that yeah. phrase? Okay. What that is, is you hurt me, or you disappointed me, or you did something wrong, and I'm not quite courageous enough to confront you and say, you know what, you wounded me, and I'm angry with you, and we need to deal with this. So instead of doing that, I complain about everything. Or I give you snide remarks. Or I won't respond intimately to you. In other words, I'm express, my anger is leaking out in other ways 
But it's so destructive because the other person doesn't have a clue as to what you're trying to communicate with those behaviors. Now, both of those are sinful responses to anger. And let me tell you, one is not better than the other. They're both utterly destructive. So it's interesting. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. That's the first kind. Don't let your anger result in sinful words or actions. The second thing he says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, you've got to deal with that crock pot. Or it's going to become a pressure cooker that's ultimately going to wipe you out. Couple of problems with anger. Problem number one, anger eats away at your soul. That's why I call it a cancer. If you can't learn to deal with anger, it will corrode and destroy and eat away at your soul. And anger also eats away at every relationship you have. Every relationship. So how do we deal with anger? You know, it's interesting because um, so much of what the world tries to do they call anger management. Have you heard that expression? Let's manage our anger. All right. So let's try to put a heavier lid on the pressure cooker. And then let's get a nice little steam valve so that, you know, your anger can blow, but it won't necessarily hurt anything. So they, they talk about things like getting physical, doing, you know, going out and chopping wood or going for a run or doing things just to... Manage your anger. And there is some wisdom in that, by the way. If you're in a relationship and you feel like you're, you're losing control to anger, you guys, it's perfectly legitimate to say, hey, you know what, we need to take a time out because I'm about to say something that I'm going to be really sorry for. That is perfectly legitimate to do. But that is not the sole solution to anger. Because anger is a problem of the soul. Um, I've had anger issues in my life. And, and you know when I see it the most is when I'm driving. I learned how to walk by the Spirit, but it took me a long time to learn how to drive by the Spirit. And I'm driving down the road and everything's wonderful, and some guy cuts me in front of me a little too close for my comfort. And I can tell when things aren't right between me and God because I just boil. Have you ever had that? Am I the only one? Uh, Maybe I'm the only one. Okay, there's a few of you. I mean, I just, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm for the Second Amendment, but I should never have a gun because, you know, I don't know. I just feel like shooting that guy. I'm enraged at him. And, I, and, and then it calms down him and, and, I, and I start thinking, where did that come from? Because, and here's the little secret. That anger has to already be there for it to rise up that quick. 
You can't go from zero to 10 that quick. You already have to be cooking at about a six or a seven in order for you to blow up that quickly. Now, here's the little secret, okay? Take out of your vocabulary, he or she makes me mad. All right? Just strike that from the English language as far as... Because nobody can make you mad. They can hurt you. They can wound you. They can exasperate you. They can discourage you. But getting angry is your choice. And this is where I learned this. And again, just write down Galatians 5, 16 through 23. You know what one of the, work, one of the works of the flesh is? Outburst of anger. That's one, of the, that's one of the things that the flesh produces. And when I started learning that when I get angry, it's an indication that my flesh is in control. Wow, that changed everything for me. Because I stopped blaming, blaming Connie for making me mad. And I started taking that sin to God and saying, God, I had an outburst of anger. That tells me I'm walking by the flesh and I want to confess that sin to you and I want to get back under the control of the Holy Spirit. It changed my life. So what's the fruit of the Spirit, everybody? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, right? Self-control, Goodness, is there one more? No, is that it? Faithful. Huh? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Yeah, that's a good... See, the short term, you definitely want to learn how to manage your anger so it doesn't wound other people. But the deeper solution is to let the Holy Spirit take the anger out of your heart. And when you learn... And it's a learned skill, how to walk by the Spirit. That's Galatians 5, 16 through 25. So if you're struggling with anger, your assignment is to commit to memory, Galatians 5, 16 through 25. You might say, oh, that's 10 verses. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I can memorize one verse, but 10 verses? Forget it. No, memorize 10 verses. Well, that'll take me all month. Who cares? Memorizing Galatians 5, 16 through 25 was the beginning of a life change for me where I began to see, wow, if I walked by the Spirit, every relationship I have in life would be transformed. So when you're dealing with cancer, you don't make excuses. Ah, it's just a little tumor. It's, it's just in the back of my head. It's no problem. It's just on my skin. It's, not, you know, it's a very aggressive cancer, but it's just a little skin cancer. You don't make excuses. You deal with it. When you have anger that's the cancer of your soul, don't make excuses. If I just had a nicer wife, I wouldn't get angry. If I had a better job, I wouldn't get angry. If my boss understood me, I wouldn't get angry. If my kids weren't so hateful, I wouldn't get angry. Stop making excuses. 
And the second thing I want to tell you, and this is so important, you guys. Get a friend, a pastor, or a counselor. And don't you dare say to them, my wife is driving me crazy. She's making me so angry. Or my husband's making me so No, you say, I am sinning with anger. And I need your help. Now, after that friend or counselor or pastor falls, gets up after falling on the floor, because people don't usually come with that kind of problem. I think in the 33 years of counseling people, I can count on one hand the number of times people have come to me and said, I have a problem and it's me. What I hear people say is I have a problem and it's my husband. It's my parents. It's my kid. It's my boss. You have such power when you start to deal with you. You guys, do you understand that one? You have such power when you start to deal with you because you are the only one you have control over. Now, I want to take the second half of anger and bitterness, which is bitterness. Bitterness is what happens when you hold on to anger and it spoils and rots. Have you ever seen gangrene? It is horrible. It's putrefied, stinking, rotting flesh. And often the only solution is to like cut the leg or arm or hand or finger off. That's your picture of bitterness. Bitterness has nothing to do with how life has treated you. Bitterness has nothing to do with how people have treated you. It has everything to do with how you've responded to life. Now, maybe the most important scripture tonight, Hebrews chapter 12. Everybody turn there. If you've got a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 15. And by the way, I'm reading from the New American Standard, so your versions may be a little different, but y'all got it? Hebrews 12, 15? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Right before James, right after Titus, I think. Okay. Here's what the writer says. And I love this first phrase. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Before we get on to the last part of the verse, I I want you to understand this phrase. And I, I love the way the New American Standard worded it. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And here's what I believe this is teaching. In every trial, in every difficult situation that you will ever face, God will give you the grace to weather that situation with godliness and joy. Have any of you ever heard of Corrie Ten Boom? Ah, Amazing. I got to hear her speak when I was a little boy. I I was like 12 years old and I still remember everything she said. And she was telling the story of her sister 
who was facing death. And Corey Ten Boom was a basket case. And, and her sister just had this peace that passes understanding. And Corey couldn't understand it. And she was talking to her. And she said, what? why why can you handle this and I can't handle it even though it's handling you and not to me? And she says, because God hasn't given you the grace that he's given me. And she told her, she said, God has given me a dying grace. The grace to die. And she went on to die and she died with joy entering into the the arms of her master and 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 Corey learned something and she said God doesn't waste his grace he won't give you grace for something you're not facing but when you're facing something he will give you the grace to overcome that with godliness and joy and so what the writer of Hebrews is saying don't fall short of that Don't refuse God's grace. Don't don't turn away from his grace. Let his grace overwhelm you so that you can live godly in that situation. So the writer says something, and listen very carefully to how he, he he says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. So I want you to understand very carefully what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, Steve, Make sure you don't fall short of the grace of God. He's saying, no, Steve, you see to it that everybody around you doesn't fall short. Because when we're going through difficult times, that's when we need each other to remind each other of God's grace, right? Does that make sense? Now, let's finish the verse. See to it that none of you fall short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness... Springing up causes trouble, and by it, many are defiled. You guys, have you been around a truly bitter person? You ever met somebody? Do you know how everything they touch gets defiled? Again, it's like, it's like their life is full of poison, and everybody around them gets poisoned. One of the things that I did when I was a youth pastor, it was, it was fun. I, I went to a retirement home and you know, took my youth group to a retirement home. We did services. And there are retirement homes. And then there are retirement homes where people go when they graduate from the other retirement homes. So the average age of these people were 95. I mean, it was like really, really old. And it was nice because, you know, no, I'm not going to say that. That's mean. Uh, I was going to say you can give the same sermon over and over again, but I won't say that. So, uh, you know, because they're forgetful. You know, they're 95. <laughs> but what was so interesting about these people is their lives by that time was etched on their face. Have, have you noticed that? There, there are some older ladies who just seem to have this natural smile on their face. And they couldn't frown if they had to. And, I, and I, we would do our little service, and then I would always go. There was a few women that I just loved to talk to. And I loved to hear the stories of their life. And, and this one woman 
had a difficult, difficult life. I mean, she had three husbands, all who died tragically. And she had children who never saw her. They were on with their lives. And yet her life was filled with the joy of Jesus. And she was just a pleasure to be around. And then there were other people. They looked like if they tried to smile, their face would crack. Have you seen those? And, and what's interesting is talking to them, many times the circumstances of their life were much easier than the circumstance of this other woman's life. It wasn't the circumstances that made them bitter. It was their expectations that were unfulfilled that made them bitter. Two things will make you bitter. Number one, having expectations that life should be easy and fair and nice and that people should treat you a certain way. See, I found the secret to happiness is to lower the bar. I, I quit expecting for days to go my way. I quit expecting to make every light. See, you know, it just, duh. Because I was like, oh, Mrs. Light, I have to sit at this red light, you know. And now I make a light. Wow. The light was green. You know, it's like just, just getting rid of expectations can set you free to be a thankful person, which is exact, exactly the opposite of bitterness. But the other thing of bitterness is when a relationship is broken and you don't fix it. When there's forgiveness that needs to be sought or granted and you don't do it. And that will lead to a deep bitterness. Um, How do you deal with bitterness? I have to tell you, it's really hard. You know the best time to pick up? pick up a weed, pick out a weed right after it started growing. And then, it's out. I'm not that smart. I wait till the, the roots have grown 19 feet in every direction and then I decide it's time to get the weed out. And I mean, you know, you start pulling that thing up and you know what happens to your lawn? Your lawn gets all torn up. There's all of this damage as the, as the roots are, are pulling everything out. That's what it's like trying to get bitterness out of your life. Because generally, people who are bitter have let it settle. And if, if you are looking, if you're listening tonight and you're saying, you know what, I think I'm a bitter person. There's two things that I would encourage you to do. Number one is to get with a pastor and confess your bitterness as your sin. I'm so bitter. People have done this and this and this to me and, and it's just life has been so hard and it's just been so, no, ter- no, 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 no. I have chosen to fall short of God's grace and I'm bitter. Very few bitter people can ever say that because they've had a whole life of blaming everybody else for their unhappiness. 
But if you're ever trying to help someone, if you can bring them to the point of helping them to see, and, and you'll feel sorry for them because most bitter people are really miserable, aren't they? And you feel bad and you want to, oh, that's all, you know what, yeah, things have really been bad. Don't ever do that. That's the worst thing you can do for a bitter person is enable their bitterness. To say, do you honestly think that you've had the most difficult life on the face of this earth? How does your life square with the life of Jesus? How does your life square with the life of Isaiah, who at the beginning of his ministry, God said, I want you to preach for your whole life, but nobody's ever going to listen to you. How does your life square with the disciples who gave up everything to follow Jesus? Bitter people desperately need a reality check. And not meanly or harshly, but just as as lovingly as you can do, help them see that the problem has been their choice all along. And I've seen people see, I mean, it's kind of exciting when people actually see this. You can just see the cracks starting and the, the heart breaking. And there was a song about breaking, my, you know, God has to break our hearts, right? In order to reform us. And that's, that's how you begin to do it. And if, if you're sort of on the road to bitterness, boy, it's a lot easier to get it now. It's like getting cancer when it's small. And start obsessing on Thanksgiving. I had one woman, she was depressed, but the real problem was she was bitter. And I said, uh, next week when you come back, I want you to have five things you're thankful for. Next week she came, she couldn't think of one. And so, okay, I'm not going to meet with you today. And she you know, freaked her out. I said, I'll meet with you when you can come up with five things. So the next week, she kind of grudgingly came back. And, and, but one of the things we did, I actually got her up to five things a day, 35 things a week, and no duplicates were allowed. And as she began to practice Thanksgiving, she began to see that there was a lot in life to be thankful for. And bitterness may feel strong, but it can't survive in a thankful heart. Bitterness dies in it. Anger dies in a thankful heart. And so, you know, I, I guess the big thing I want to encourage you, if, if you're feeling stuck, if, if there's a, a dam that seems to be holding you back from letting the, the spirit flow out of your life, if, if, there, if there seems to be Oh, I, I sing these songs, but nah. joy inexpressible and full of glory. Nah, I don't think so. I want to encourage you to first ask the question, God, how have I been lying to myself? And if you find that you're stuck... 
That should actually be the greatest cause for joy. Because the first step in getting unstuck is realizing that you're stuck. And then find a brother or sister in Christ that you trust and share with them, I'm stuck. And this is what God has revealed to me. And I need you to pray with me. I need you to to walk with me as we go through the process of getting unstuck. And the cool thing is, you don't need hidden knowledge that you don't have. It's all in God's word. I mean, if there's one thing I've learned, I'm 64, and I've walked with Jesus for almost all my life. There's very few simple things I've learned. Number one, I've learned that God's word is really true and it works. God's word is really true and it actually works. And I find when I just, and and I want to encourage you as you're walking through all of this stuff, don't simply read God's word, but memorize God's word. And don't simply memorize one verse, but memorize a large block of scripture. Like, for example, if you're struggling with anxiety, memorize Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Don't memorize Philippians 4, 6. Memorize Philippians 4, 1 through 9. The great thing is, once you get done, you'll forget what you're worried about, you know? So there's a lot of... We just got to get our focus back on Jesus. And the way we get our focus on Jesus is we get our focus in his word and that puts it back on Jesus and then the waves don't seem so big around us and we can start walking on water again, which is what Jesus wanted us to do all along. And so, you know, the, the cancers that I've seen, and I'll just list them for you. It's uh, anger and bitterness. The second one I wish we had time to get to, but we're out of time, is Regret. Regret is a cancer that will destroy you and destroy relationships. I, I have a, a very dear friend after many years, over 25 years of marriage, they're calling it quits. And the fundamental problem is both have regrets that they can't let go of. And they're both so sad. And the longer you hold on to regrets, the harder it is to let go of them. It's a cancer. If you're wondering how to get deal with regret, it, it's right in Philippians 3. Philippians 3, chapter 10, and just take it to the end of the chapter. The only way you can let go of regret is to, by having something greater that you're pursuing. What Paul was pursuing was intimacy with Jesus. And so he said, forgetting what lies behind. Do you know, and I'll, I'll just give you my personal opinion. I believe Paul's marriage failed. And that's why he was alone for his life. When he became a believer, I believe his wife left him. I'm sure he was married because to be a member of the Sanhedrin, which Paul was, you had to be married. And for all of his life as a Christian, he's single. And notice, interestingly enough, that Paul says, I suffered the loss of all things. Paul's relationship with Jesus cost him everything. And he had to let go of that regret. 
My wife left me. Or maybe she died. I don't know what happened, but I have, some, I have a hunch that there's something that could have been a regret that would have been an anchor that would have held Paul back from pursuing Jesus. If you have regrets, stop lying to yourself. Catch this. Realize that to hold on to regret is sin. To hold on to regret is sin. I sound very harsh, don't I? I don't, I, don't, I don't mean to, but I just, I want to be really blunt because I want you to go, ah, I don't want to do that, you know. And when you let go of regret, the freedom that will eventually come when you <sighs> finally get it, you'll feel so light and airy that you can actually pursue Jesus. So Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, I'm pressing on towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm pressing forward to be all that Jesus wants me to be and to do all that he wants me to be. And that's your big future that will give you the power to let go of your bad past. Okay? So regret is the second one. The third one is impurity. And the fourth one is anxiety. Those are the four cancers that I've observed that you can't treat with kid gloves. You have to surgically deal with them. So, boy, someday I'd love to come back and go over the last couple of these and, and just talk to you. And In fact, if, if you want, my notes are kind of scattered, but you know I could even leave them with you and you could run them off if people wanted to just get the scriptures and stuff. Um, but you guys, my biggest prayer for you, God wants to bring this valley to himself. He wants people to come to know Jesus. And in order for people to come to know Jesus, people who are knowing Jesus need to show them that it's worth it. Come to Jesus, he'll give you joy. Oh, boy, I want Jesus. Come to Jesus. He'll give you peace. I'm worried out of my mind, but he'll give you peace. See, the crazy thing is, is all of these scriptures were actually meant to be experienced. And that's what I want for you. So if you're stuck, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the body of Christ can help you get unstuck. But you've got to quit lying to yourself. So, Father, we thank you for this time. It's been a little scattered, but I, I hope that something has been helpful to folks here. And I just pray in Jesus' name that you, would, that you would excite us about getting unstuck and making that forward progress for the kingdom of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.